5 as we continue in our series through uh, John's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 1 through 16, or where we'll be at today. Well, you know, um, I came across a YouTube video recently. That can be a dangerous thing to do, you know, go down the rabbit hole of the YouTube videos, but uh, came across this YouTube video, and in it there's a, a young boy, and he comes across a, uh, a sheep that is stuck in a long, narrow, looks like an irrigation trench, which has been dug out beside a road, and so the boy uses his hands and, and a belt to wrap around the leg of the sheep and pull the sheep out and rescue it, and in fact, let's, let's watch that video just for a moment. It's only about 30 seconds long. There he is. Now keep watching here. Oh. Yeah. How about that? Yeah, now keep watching. Here's the good part. Oh, there you go. Slow motion. Yeah. Have no fear, they got, the, they got the sheep out the second time I checked. So uh, I, I think that, that video is great because immediately on being set free, the sheep, you know, takes those few stumbling steps and then joyful leaps, right? And, and boom, right back into the trench. Uh, and, and so then, you know, after, after the, the video on YouTube, there's comment section, right? And so I, I was just kind of scrolling through. Here's a few comments I come across. One guy, uh, his name is Santo. He said, this is the story of my life. I thought, well, I like that. And uh, then somebody else said, another guy said, that's why Jesus calls us sheep. I thought, yeah, that's right. Uh, another guy by the name of Tim Walker wrote, uh, me and Jesus on a regular basis. Yes. And then a, a woman named Cora wrote, this is a great representation of what believers often do after Jesus drags us out of the ditch. We fall or jump right back in and need to be saved. And then finally, a woman named Victoria said, uh, Jesus said in John 5, 14, see you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse might happen to you. Like ending up in the ditch again. Well, that last observation uh, I thought was so cool because it's a quote right out of our text today in the, in, uh, in the Gospel of John. Uh, and it reminds me that often in times of trial or in times of hardship, we needlessly suffer because what do we do? We get back in the ditch. We seek the advice of others that might not be the right advice. We hold on to sin in our hearts instead of seeking out the good shepherd. Uh, and so Jesus, in, in the first part of chapter 5, here we, we read uh, of a, a miraculous event that happened when Jesus was on his way to one of the major Jewish festivals. So I'd like to begin by asking you to read with me the first uh, several verses of this encounter. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. Let's begin. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, Jesus said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered to him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. 
and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Amen. The word of God. Well, I want a couple of things to note here before we move farther. I thought, thought it was very interesting as I was looking into this that Jesus, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world, enters Jerusalem through a gate called the Sheep Gate. The Sheep Gate was the gate in which they brought in all the sheep, thousands of sheep during the festivals. They brought them through those gates into the temple to be slaughtered as sacrifices. And so isn't it interesting that the Lamb of God enters into Jerusalem through the sheep gate? Well, he comes to this pool called Bethesda and lying all around the pool are sick and paralyzed people. And they're there because there's a, a legend that an angel would occasionally come and stir up the water of the pool and that the first one to enter the pool after the angel stirred the water would be healed. Now, that legend is mentioned in verse 4, and some of you are looking in your Bibles right now, and you're saying, oh, wait a minute, I don't have a verse 4. It goes from 3 to 5. Or maybe you have a, a footnote down at the bottom. Uh, and that is because verse 4 is omitted from most modern English Bibles uh, other than the King James Version. And that's because most textual scholars believe that verse 4 was not in the original text, but added later by scribes, uh, and so that so today it's not included in most of our uh, most more accurate translations. Now, this legend was, of course, a common belief in the day, and it was the last hope for many of this people, of the people that were lying around that pool. And, and it just occurs to me, it's not unlike what is found in many parts of the world today. People holding on to hope for deliverance through some superstition or some miracle cure or some special supplement or formula. And whether anyone is healed or not, people hold on to hope for some form of hope, for some miraculous healing. Well, it is Jesus that moves into the midst of a whole group of people like this, desperate people. But I want you to notice something. Jesus doesn't just indiscriminately start healing everybody at the pool that day. He could do that, but he doesn't do that. And so just picture him as he moves among the blind and the lame and the injured, all of these people in great despair. And Jesus is drawn to just one man, one particular man who has been ill for 38 years. That's a long time. Now the Bible doesn't tell us the nature of his disease other than that it, it rendered him unable to walk. Nor are we told uh, why among so many of the people that would have been around that pool that Jesus chose only to heal this particular man. But this morning, I think from some careful observation of the man and this encounter with Jesus, I think that we can learn some things about ourselves. So I wanna do that with you this morning. Excuse me. According to John, Jesus had traveled from Galilee to Jerusalem. Now that's a distance of some 65 miles. He didn't take the subway. 
didn't have a driver, there was no Uber. He walked 65 miles in order to come to this festival in Jerusalem. And I believe he came specifically to meet this man. So it's no surprise to us then to learn that Jesus is not even mentioned as being at the festival, although that's his reason for coming. But instead, where is he? He's at the place where multitudes of sick and hurting people are gathered, desperately longing, but with little hope of being the one that would be cured. And through this encounter, we see Jesus interacting, I think, in, I want to look at it from four distinct ways this morning, offering help for the helpless. Because that's what Jesus does. He offers help for the helpless. The help that he offers to this unnamed man is really no different than the help that Jesus might offer to you or to me today if we're willing to receive it. And so let's begin by considering, first of all, the helpless and the helper. If you're following along in your outline, the helpless and the helper. And it's in verse 5 that John introduces us to the depths of this one man's helplessness. The problem with the pools of Bethesda was that when the the water stirred, supposedly only the first person to dive into the water would be cured. And so John tells us that there's a man uh, present who is desperate in a whole crowd of desperate people who's been an invalid for 38 years. What chances What chance does this man have to be quicker to get into the pool than other people that are there? Those with withered hands or blind or or even the lame who might be able to partially walk. What chance does he have? John doesn't want us, though, to miss out on the irony of this situation. And that is that Jesus, the great physician, Jesus Christ himself is in the midst of all of these desperate people. And yet, in their helplessness and in their spiritual blindness, not one of them cries out to Jesus. Not one says, son of David, have mercy on me. And and, you know, in a way, I think this story is indicative of what humanity has been like always. There have always been multitudes of hurting people waiting for life to get better. But year after year after year, living in pain and turmoil, feeling like they have little or no hope. The reality is everywhere we might go in this world, there is suffering and there is sorrow and there is distress. Is that right? And even if people are not suffering from physical health issues, there are plenty multitudes who are in spiritual deadness, experiencing the great pain of being separated from God, always looking for but never finding true joy and peace. And friends, these are the truly helpless. And like those poor souls at that pool of Bethesda, they don't realize that the true helper is right in their midst. Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him, the man lying there, and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? 
Now, it seems like a strange question to ask a man who's been sick and an invalid for nearly 40 years, right? Do you want to be healed? But you know, Jesus never asks foolish questions. Jesus isn't trying to trick this man. So clearly, it was important for this man to answer, at least for himself, the question, do I really want to be changed? Jesus was asking a very serious question because it is entirely possible that the man didn't really want to be changed. You know, in the past 38 years, this man has been a beggar who has lived by the charity of others. It's what he knows. It's what he is used to. And if he is healed, he will lose everything that he knows. This man, by being healed, would be venturing out into the unknown. He would lose all of his present securities. He'll have to be responsible for himself. He'll have to find work. He'll be entering a whole new world. To be healed meant to enter into a completely new and different lifestyle. One with wonderful possibilities, but also with a certain amount of risk. And so Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And friends, the same uncertainty exists in many people today. Their lives are sick. They're paralyzed in heart and in mind. Their lives are perhaps dysfunctional, but they struggle with the idea that God might, might have something for him. But they've learned to live with the status quo. Some are completely unaware that there is something more to life. They've been, become just satisfied with subsisting. They're not seeking God or calling out to him. Kind of like those people around that pool. It's as, if though, it's, as, it's as if though they are sick and don't even know it, or their broken condition has just become normal to them. And friends, this condition can even be seen in the life of some churchgoers. People who attend church that are nice and respectful, but ultimately unsaved. You know, we may seem excited about what we hear, but do we apply God's word? Do we live it out? Do we listen to the gospel but then continue to live in our sinful conditions? You see, there comes a moment of decision when each of us, each of us must decide if we really want to be healed or not. And so Jesus asked us, do you want to be healed? You know, others outwardly receive Christ as Lord, but then they stop short of a full commitment. Well, yeah, Jesus is Lord, but I think this, or I prefer this, or, you know, once Jesus is truly Lord, you know what that word means? Master, ruler, the shot caller, the boss, the man. If he is truly Lord of our life, then we will be confronted with issues in our life that need to be changed. Is that right? Unhealthy habits, deep-seated bitterness, unresolved conflicts, and other things hiding in our hearts that need to be healed. And the question Jesus asks you today is, do you really want to be well? Or do you want to hold on to that junk? 
So the question that Jesus, the helper, asks of the helpless, paralyzed man that seemed unnecessary, maybe even ridiculous, was very relevant for that man and for us. Do you want to be healed? The helper comes to the helpless. And then next we see the excuse and the cure. The excuse and the cure. After Jesus asked him that provocative question, do you want to be healed? We witnessed the man. He answers pretty quickly in verse 7. Well, the sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Can you just kind of hear this poor man's voice kind of crackle? As he remembered all those times that he saw someone else get into the pool ahead of him and he was left to live in his life of misery and pain. Maybe he sought help from others to receive the cure only to find them as preoccupied on their own self as he was on his self. Jesus, by this time, has performed many miracles. And yet the crowd that he enters into, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed people there in Jerusalem, they did not recognize the great physician Jesus was in their midst. He who has the power to heal all of them, and yet none of them recognized him. Like the paralyzed man, friends, we can be quick to look to others to help alleviate our suffering and pain. We can be quick to excuse our own inaction. Well, it's because of this or because of this. Well, at the same time, we can be blind to the truth that the great physician is willing and he is able not only to heal us physically, but much, much more importantly, to heal our souls. And how easy is it to fall into a deep pit of despair and excuse making when we don't allow Jesus to be Lord of our life? Well, it's at this point in the story that Jesus provides the cure. In verses 8 and 9, Jesus said to him, get up, get up, man, take up your bed and start walking. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and he walked. Now this healing is very unusual in a number of different ways. It's clearly a miracle. He gets up immediately and starts walking. That's a miracle. But that's not the unusual part. Jesus did many miracles that have the wow factor. The thing that's unusual to me is that this miracle is not done at the man's direct request to Jesus. He doesn't ask Jesus for help. But instead, Jesus takes the initiative. The initiative of the good shepherd giving to the sheep unmerited grace and mercy. Even if the man did not fully understand the complete futility of his illness and he lacked faith to fully trust in Jesus as Lord, Jesus still looked at him with compassion and with mercy. And he gave to him not what he deserved, but what was so desperately needed. 
You see, friends, change is never possible until we admit that we have a problem and that we want change. If we want the cure, we not only have to decide we want to be changed, we have to decide we are ready to stop making excuses. That's when the cure can come. And this sets us up for the next phase of receiving help for the helpless. And that is that we have to understand the difference between religion and obedience. Religion and obedience. As this man is carrying his bedroll through the streets of Jerusalem, probably in the temple courtyards, his act of obedience to Jesus brings both he and Jesus directly into conflict with the Jewish religious authorities. Let's read together the next part of the encounter. The words are on the screen. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Hmm. A little intrigue here, right? A little mystery. I want you to notice these Jewish religious leaders, they are very quick to point out to the man that he was a lawbreaker for carrying his bed through the streets. We kind of chuckle at that, but that statement would have instilled fear. Fear in this man's heart because breaking the Sabbath law could enact some serious punishment. Perhaps even death. Now, notice that the man is quick to lapse back to his old ways of excuse making. As he tells the authorities that he, oh, I'm only obeying this other guy. Just doing what the rabbi told me to do. Pick up my bed and walk. And so, of course, what do they do? They say, well, who is this dude? The identity of this healer, as the man pleads in ignorance. Now, obviously, the man had a choice when Jesus told him to get up and walk. He could have chose to listen and ignore. He could have chose to listen and hope for something better, a better deal. Maybe something better will come along. Or he could choose to listen and obey. And brothers and sisters, we all have that same choice. Will we listen? Will we sit in the pews and listen? Will we read our Bible and listen? And then say, well, maybe something better will come along. Or will we listen to the word of God and obey? In this text, with the command to take up his bed and walk, the Lord is telling this paralyzed man and all of us to make no provision to stay comfortable or to go back to what we have been. You see, the reality is many of us are content to stay in the place where we are most comfortable. Sometimes we like the rules and regulations of man's religion. You know why? Because they're, they're measurable. 
and definable. I can check off the marks and say, okay, I did that. I'm good now. But that's not what Jesus calls us to. Jesus doesn't call us to religion to check a list. Jesus calls us to obedience, to his ways, not to the comfort of man's ways. And so I want to ask you this question. Do we spend too much time trying to control the future that is uncertain and unknowable instead of seeking first the kingdom of God? You see, as his sheep, do we listen to his voice? Or are we more influenced by the voices and the authorities of this world? Will we pursue religion? Or will we be people of obedience to the Lord? Well, finally, I want you to notice the importance of stopping and starting. Stopping and starting. As he finishes the story, John tells us that later, Jesus goes and tracks this man down somewhere in the temple courtyards. And he says to the man in verse 14, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. That's the quote that the young lady put on the YouTube video. Having dealt with the man's physical infirmities, now Christ addresses his spiritual condition, which is much, much more serious. Because our physical infirmities come and go. And if you don't know it already, someday you're going to get sick and die. That's just what happens, right? This world's not getting better. And these bodies aren't getting better. But God is invested in our spiritual well-being. Now, not every disease is the product of our personal sin. But all brokenness in this world flows from the place of sin. Sin inherited from those before us. Sin and heartache caused by others. The sin and decay of just living in this broken world. Sin is all around us. Sin is all about us. And our new life in Christ will help us to rise above that. And as we follow Christ, it will include a consistency of stopping or fleeing from sinful choices and behaviors and a starting of holy living and spiritual pursuits and righteous thinking. And we won't do this perfectly. And we won't achieve all that we should be. But like this man, we need to listen to Jesus who says, sin no more. And implied in that is start doing something better, more significant. Friends, unless we invite God to search our hearts to discover what sin dwells deep within, then you know what's going to happen? If we don't invite him in, the storms of rebellion are going to swirl about us continually. They're going to rage in our life and no amount of burying our heads in the sand of ignorance will change the hardships and the heartache that we continue to experience.
could possibly be worse than being paralyzed for 38 years? I'll tell you what. Standing before the judgment seat of Christ, explaining why we have wasted so many precious years pursuing sin and selfishness, estranged from the very one who came to save us. The last thing I want you to note is that this man is so overwhelmed with joy that the root cause of his calamities is now known, that he has been forgiven, that what does he do? He goes back and he finds the very Jewish leaders who had threatened him not long ago. He goes and finds them. He seeks them out. And what does he tell them in verse 15? It was Jesus who made me well. This man has become a disciple, a learning, doing follower of Jesus. And he's not afraid to admit it. He's not afraid to tell others. He's ready to stop his old ways of excuse making and reliance on others and bitterness. And he's ready to start living for and proclaiming to others the name of Jesus Christ and all that it means. Well, several times over the last several months, I have been late for a meeting or an appointment because I haven't been able to find my keys. And here's what's happened. On one occasion, I was sure that my wife had misplaced my keys. Sue, so what did you do with my keys? On another occasion, I was pretty sure it was my grandkids who were visiting that had done something with my keys. They'd moved them. On another occasion, I was here at the church building, and I was sure that somebody had borrowed my keys and forgotten to return them. And so in each of those occasions, I was running from room to room at home or here at the church, and in my mind, what am I doing? I'm assigning blame. Who took off with my keys? I put them right here on the counter, and now they're gone. They didn't just vanish into thin air. Who picked them up? Where are they? I'm late and right when I'm about to go ballistic, I might walk into the bedroom or my office one last time, huffing and puffing and moaning and groaning, and I put my hands right here in my pocket, and I pull out my keys. They were there the whole time. Now, every time I tell that story, people laugh. You just laughed. And rightfully so. Who frantically looks for car keys that are in his pocket. Well, me, that's who. But the truth is, my friends, at times we all live this way. Frantically, frustratingly searching for something that we already have. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is God's good news announcement that everything that you need, you already possess in Jesus Christ. There is nothing else that you need apart from Jesus. Because of Jesus' finished work, we Christians already have all of the justification, all of the approval, 
all of the significance, all of the security, the freedom, the validation, the love, the righteousness, the rescue. We have everything that we desperately long for. We have everything that we're searching about, looking for, and a thousand things that are infinitely smaller and more insignificant than Jesus. He provides everything we need. And yet at times, we allow our internal voice that constantly says, oh, you do this, you better do that. If you want to live, you got to do this. And we allow that voice to drown out the voice of God, the voice of truth that is shouting to us, it is finished. I have everything you need right here. So as we wrap up, let me ask you a couple of questions. Number one, it's that same question that Jesus asked the blind, the, 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 uh, the man at the pool. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? If so, trust the helper. And then enter into partnership with him. Pick up your mat and walk. Stop making excuses and embrace the cure of living your life according to God's plan and not your own. Statement number two. Stop your own efforts to make it work. No angel is going to come down and stir the waters miraculously and fix everything for you. If you're waiting to win the lottery to pay off all your bills and take care of everything, it's not going to happen. Stop it. And start looking to Jesus. I heard a, a preacher say one time that we spend so much time looking for the miraculous that we miss the supernatural. Think about that for a moment. We're looking for the miracles to bail us out and we miss the supernatural. Look for what God is already doing in your life and then join him in it. Because he's right there walking amidst all of the people around the pool. And he's looking to make eye contact with you. And he says to you, do you want to get well? Yes, I want to be well. And then finally, put aside the religious traditions taught by men that so many of us hold on to so tightly and instead obey the clear way, truth, and life of Jesus Christ. Your understanding of God's nature will influence your expectation of him. So what is your expectation? Trust in the only one who can help you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. And more importantly, Father, we thank you for the power of Jesus Christ in our life. Father, we thank you that you are the same God today as you were in the first century around the pool of Bethesda. As you were at creation. Father, you have not changed. Father, you continue to seek relationship with us and invite us into something better, more superior, more preferred than anything this life might offer. Father, may we respond as we recognize our helpless condition and we step into the help that only you can offer. Father, may we be people 
that don't just call you Lord, but maybe we live in lordship, following you, trusting you, seeking you to guide and to direct our lives. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.